Thought Bubble Audio. Hi, I'm Kirsty. I'm Kelsey. And it's time to hate watch with us. Welcome to our variety show for sarcastic people. You have no idea what it has taken, what a monumental force of human spirit it has taken to get us to this introduction of this episode. It's been a horrible night for Hate Watch. (laughs) (laughs) So fair warning up front, everything is broken and all of us are dying. So I have an affliction of the upper respiratory system and therefore (laughs) sound like death. So get used to this because this is who I am now. I have an affliction of the Wi-Fi system. (laughs) So (laughs) this is who I am now too. Someone whose (laughs) Wi-Fi doesn't work in closets. (laughs) Yeah. So here we are. And we're glad you guys made it here, too. We are. What are we talking about? What are we doing here? <laughs> Why are we here? Who Why are, are we? we here? What are we doing? Who am I? <laughs> <laughs> so we're going to be talking about two things. and I'm not sure the order that we're talking about them in. So you can decide that. But Speaking of choose your own adventure. <laughs> <laughs> this week... Is the <coughs> in- <laughs> it weren't you? Here she's the one to talk about that first, so we're gonna talk about the other thing first. <laughs> Fair warning, laughter also makes me cough. So, <laughs> all right, so we're talking about anyway, it's the tenth anniversary of what? No, we're doing that second because you coughed and changed the course of time in history. <laughs> we're talking about some sort of shit related to Designated Survivor. Kirsty gave me an assignment of three episodes to watch, and we're going to talk about what happened to us there. We're testing out the Lucas methodology. Exactly. And then we're going to talk about the 2007 writer's strike because it is the 10 year anniversary of the start of that tumultuous time in the formative years of television watching for myself because this is all about us it's our podcast (laughs) yeah (laughs) Yeah, so we're going to talk about why and how and the lasting effects of said writer's strike while we hope that we never have one again. Although we came very close this year. We did. So I think it's safe to assume that there will probably be another one someday. Someday, maybe. Yep, 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 yep. <laughs> so if we're going to talk about designated survivor first, I need you to do the teeing up of the designating <laughs> and the surviving. Excellent, excellent. This is an ABC drama, is that correct? I think so. Yes, it is. It just started its second season three or four weeks ago, somewhere in that zone. And as the name suggests, it is a show about the gentleman who was chosen to be the designated survivor during the State of the Union address. 
So I asked Kelsey to watch the pilot, the season one finale, and because we're testing out the Lucas method of hate watching, uh, season two, episode two. That one I chose rather than the season two opener because it is just bananas from start to finish. It is like hate watch gold. It's so fucking good. It is. Do you, as the person who has watched these most recently, want to attempt a summary and I will fill in anything you've missed? Sure. And I'm going to caveat this with the overarching feeling that I had watching these episodes that I had missed absolutely nothing in between. That is correct. (laughs) So... That is why I felt very comfortable using the Lucas method. (laughs) Yeah. The premise of Designated Survivor is that Americans watch the show every week and get nowhere with the plot. But (laughs) truly, the premise is that the Designated Survivor, who is Keither Sutherland... Ooh, that was a tough name. Keither Sutherland. (laughs) Keither Sutherland. I Honestly, it doesn't sound any less silly. Fair. So sorry, Kiefer. Kiefer says these Warby Parkers that he wears and he wears a sweatshirt. And yep. that's how you know he's the designated survivor and he's not really cut out to be the president. Mm-hmm. And there's an attack on the White House and he becomes the president. On the White House? It's the Cong- I don't know, one of those. <laughs> the Capitol building, maybe? Same. Same. Anyway. <laughs> All all the political people are in the same building at the same time. For the same reason. (laughs) For the same reason. (laughs) (laughs) It's the State of the Union, so all of Congress is there. Sure, sure, sure. And Keefe gets to become president, even though he still wears a hoodie. And (laughs) there's this one FBI chick who is trying to track down who did it. And so Keefe kind of like becomes president. And he does this thing, and that's what happens for all of season one, while they're trying to track this, like, rando dude who master was, like, the mastermind of the attack. And then, should I carry on and describe all these episodes? Yep. Okay. So then, he is tracked, and they keep chasing him, but he always has an escape route, like a tunnel in his house. <laughs> and so they keep letting him slip away. And then, finally, they capture him. Nope. They, they like, identify his whereabouts, and then they blow him up with a drone. And <laughs> Keith still has, like, unsure sort of, like, footing as a president, so he's sometimes respected and sometimes isn't, so there's some, like, weird stuff going on that doesn't really matter that much in terms of that storyline. He has a very supportive wife, trademark, and... Yep. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> He has some, like, mopey kid and a cute kid, and um, Kumar is in it. Yep. So he does it, and he has a vertical monitor, which bothered me, apparently, in both the pilot and in the episodes I watched recently. (laughs) (laughs) Made it into your notes? Twice. So I watched the pilot last year around this time, and so I'm looking at my notes from back then. And I have, what is that fucking vertical screen? Do they even make those in real life? Why, why, why? And then in my notes from yesterday, I said, why do they all use vertical monitors? All caps. 
Why does Kumar use a vertical monitor as a separate bullet point from that one? (laughs) (laughs) Aw. So, yeah, that was... So some stuff that you missed in the meantime there is that in tracking down this guy, they uncover the cult that he runs called Pax Americana. Yeah, that's right. And they have, like, a manifesto. And it's not terribly clear what they want to accomplish other than blowing up, like, major landmarks across the country and internationally. And blowing stuff up has something to do with some very important thing that they believe as part of this large conspiracy. Right. So that's, that's like, the only other sort of important piece is that they're not just tracking down this one guy. They're also, like, trying to get to the root of this massive conspiracy that he started with his cult. And also, there's this vice president man who survives. Um, he, well, he becomes vice president later, but he's originally a congressman. He survives the bombing because oh, he's in this room. The suitcase, briefcase, whatever. Same. He's like the 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 very like young sir who's like quaffed. The young sir who gets hired back in one of these episodes. No, no, no. that's Aaron. And Aaron is interesting. He is also a quaffed young sir. But he is interesting because every single DC show has an Aaron. There's there's an Aaron in Veep. Who's the What's Aaron? his face in Veep? Oh, Dan. Dan. There it is. Dan yeah. is the Aaron in that show. House of Cards has an Aaron, too. I can't remember his name, but he's there. Is it, uh... Nope. It, um, uh, fuck. I can picture him now. He, he ah, shit. Oh, my God. Who is he? Hold on. I have to Google this. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, a lot of things just happened all at once. In the meantime, I think I have problematic feelings about Veep Stan. Oh, okay. <laughs> if you want to go there. I'm ready. I'm ready. I'm just, I mean, we know I'm here for the rom-com. That's all. Like, I find myself attracted Always. to him, and then I'm like, but you're terrible, and I don't actually like you. So. Well, but it's okay, because he's, he's, it's a comedy, right? So uh-huh. even though he's terrible, it's, like, acceptable. Seth. Seth, but he's the... Yeah, that's fair. I'll give you that. Seth is the Aaron of House of Cards, so it's always a dude who looks like this. Just look him up. Look up Aaron and Dan and Seth and put them side by side and tell me that they're not a bunch of white bread white dudes. They're a slightly different variety than the, like, mediocre white man variety that we talk about a lot. Yes. But they're in that vein almost. And they always have a high power job in the White House that's usually tied to communications. Right. Every DC show has an Aaron. <laughs> but does every DC th- show have a three chum? No, not every DC show has a three chum. Everyone <laughs> should, though. Aww. You know what every show also has? It's not even just DC shows, but every show has it. What? Every show has a Colin. Oh. <laughs> Speaking of the mediocre white man. <laughs> so here's here's a rabbit hole for y'all. So this is not the time or the place. We're going there. <laughs> There's that journalist in House of Cards who eventually dies. I think his actual name is Lucas. But for like three straight seasons, I thought his name was Colin. He'll always be Colin to me. I thought his name was Colin. And so... Uh, the way that you know a Colin in any given se- series is that, like, they're tangentially important to the plot, but, like, not really. And 
you have no reason to care about them, and they suck at everything that they do. And as soon as they're killed off of the show, you forgot that they ever existed. I'll never forget Colin. I don't know what you're talking about. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. Yikes. So anyway, back to Designated Survivor. Yeah. Why don't you give me your impressions of it from these three episodes, other than the fact that you got nothing out of it? I don't I don't think I got nothing out of it. I think, like, what we were talking about a little bit on Slack yesterday was that it's so effective in its pilot <laughs> that it kind of rendered the rest of the season, I guess, kind of useless, because as I was yeah. saying, like... I didn't feel like I'd missed anything, which is especially weird because I'm so averse to skipping ahead in anything. And it didn't even bother me to skip ahead in the show, partly because I had no, like, stake in the game, but also because I just felt like nothing had happened and it was very easy (laughs) to follow, which maybe speaks to broadcast narratives as a whole. Yes. They make them fairly easy to pick up on so you can tune in and out if you're... A person like that? I guess there's people like that. <laughs> yeah, not everybody can be a completionist, Kelsey. Yeah, fair. I've been told that before. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't really compelled by anything that happens in this show. Mm-hmm. Like, it seems like it's it's trying to be prestige and not at the same time. So it's like trying to be slow and methodical, but it just gets boring. Yeah. And even, like, there was a car chase in the finale of season one, and it was so boring. Uh-huh. Like, the Americans, if you want to see a good car chase that gets you, like, really nervous, watch any of the you know, surveillance, like, chases on the Americans, because they're mm. bananas. This is so boring. And this one included, like, car crashes. And Yeah, well... And the whole premise of this particular car chase is that she, Hannah Wells, gets locked in a van full of bombs that's under the FBI headquarters, I believe. It's under some important building. And so she steals the van. She, like, breaks out of her hostage situation, steals the van, and is trying to drive it as far out of D.C. as she can in three minutes. So that's a high-stakes situation in theory. Yeah, and it did not feel like it at all. It felt like my morning commute (laughs) i mean (laughs) look at your life look at your choices sure that's all i'm gonna say (laughs) but i think the problem is like for that in particular it's a network drama right and so where the formula kills it is like you know they're not gonna blow up hannah wells who's the only person in the show that knows the full extent of the conspiracy And you know that they're not going to blow up some building with Hannah Wells inside in the first 10 minutes of the season finale. So you know she's going to get it through DC and she's going to throw the van in some water and it'll be fine. Right. But that wasn't even the car chase I was talking about. Oh, that wasn't? What's the other one? I just realized that because I was like, wait, that was the one with the bad CGI. No, this is the one where she's pursuing the the pretty boy who's like the lost member of 98 Degrees. (laughs) You know who I'm talking about? Sure. Maybe. The one who gets the security clearance and, like, breaks into the Pentagon. Oh, yeah, yeah. She's, like, pursuing him. Oh, I forgot about that. Before she impales him on a, like, stake. Right. Which also right, right, right. was not compelling. No. Yeah, no, that's the one I was thinking of. But either way, gotcha. none either of way, them were interesting. Same, Jeff. Some other things that were 
little red threads throughout at least the season one notes that I have. There were some allusions to Star Wars in the in the fun vault set piece. There was some blue accent lighting. And my note is, I literally can't with the blue accent lighting. Is this Star Wars? This is Star Wars. Which which episode was that? Was that in the pilot? Yeah. They had, like, all those fancy screens. I have a note in some episode that where I referred to something as the Death Star. <laughs> and that was before Nerdication. That was, like, a year before Nerdication. Wow. Yeah. And then in in the finale, I said, is this the end of A New Hope? Because they spend oh. so much time congratulating themselves and sucking their own dicks for what has <laughs> happened over the course of this episode <laughs> that I actually can't. That is the song of this show, though. Like, if they're not sucking their own dick over how <laughs> good they are at saving the country, they're sucking America's dick about how good it is at being a country. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah, that was a lot. <laughs> Some other technology-related gripes. I had a lot of those. Mm. Oh, Uh, yes. There was a line written in 2008 that said, he's laying down a new dubstep track and I need to write a program for him. (laughs) Uh, Instagrams from my government issued Blackberry of this presidential swearing in was a thing that happened. (laughs) <laughs> also, when when the Capitol first gets blown up and his Secret Service detail comes in to take him to the motorcade, his Secret Service guy shouts, give me your government-issued Blackberry. <laughs> yeah. I also have a quote that says, I want TSA screening equipment installed now. I wrote that down, too! <laughs> that was one of my um, favorites. I was like, okay, Sure. Sure. And then I also had, besides the vertical monitors, my other one is I will never believe anyone actually owns a Microsoft Surface. (laughs) So they're showing this guy, like, hacking into something using his Surface tablet. Like, this is not real. It's not. Not real, no. That's super funny. Like, there's a Microsoft Surface in my house, and I still don't believe anyone actually owns them. In your house? Yes. Seriously? Yeah. Why didn't I don't like to talk about it. It just exists. I have a lot of questions. Although I will have you know that they are making their way around police departments across the country. They're a very popular emergency response tool right now. They're very popular in in the NFL, too. doesn't make them good. It makes them (laughs) paid for. Yeah, exactly. Oh, yeah. The other cross... Cross... The other (laughs) reference that I had, not a cross-reference, was that there were some decor items. (laughs) Um, The house that the crazy guy was living in during the finale that he was hiding in was a high alert for McMansion Hell. Yep. This is the one that had a closet that opened up into a, like, mile-long tunnel. Yep. Which is a nifty feature that you don't see in most houses. And my other note from the pilot was, check out that wood-paneled bathroom. I think they spent a little extra on finishes, but it was worth it. (laughs) (laughs) The finishes put us a little over budget on this network drama. (laughs) My twerk voice isn't good right now. (laughs) 
I think they're really going to pay off when we get the ratings. <laughs> it cost us extra, but the season two renewal was in the bag. Oh. So speaking of season two, you had me watch that episode. Yes. And I had not seen the pilot, not the pilot, the premiere of season two. Yep. Again, felt like I hadn't missed anything because who needs a compelling season premiere? That was the worst season two opener I've ever seen, which I know is like an oddly specific like thing, but it's literally called One Year Later. And the whole premise of it is that Kirkman has been in office for one year now. And it's sort of it's like a, a sadder cut rate version of Leslie Nope's one year as city councilwoman where she spends the whole time trying to do like her victory lap of Pawnee mm-hmm. and people keep shooting her down. <laughs> it's the designated survivor equivalent episode. No, no. So there was sometime at the end of season one, there was this think piece written by someone. It doesn't even matter. Vulture probably about how the problem with shows like designated survivor is that they always start with a crisis and then that, like, only the government can solve, and then at some point have to pivot from, like, emergency management to governance. Yeah. And so that was, like, the tension in all of season one was, like, the writers clearly couldn't decide at which point they needed to pivot to just, like, governing the country. And unfortunately, they had that conversation, like, pretty out in the open on the show. Yeah. Like, via the characters, where the characters would have these scenes of being, like, we have to write policy still, so let's talk about gun control. (laughs) Oh, but the blueprints of the Capitol are still in this classified file, but bullying is a thing. And so the beginning of season two felt like that battle, like coming to a head where they were like, eh, we'll just do a time jump, and now we're going to talk about DC policy stuff, like any old good drama. Oh, boy. Because we forgot how to make this conspiracy important. (laughs) Even in the one that I watched, they were like, it's been a whole year since all of the government was together under one roof. (laughs) Like, I get it. I get it. I get it. Please tell me in case I missed it, though. Yeah. So I did a whole page of notes for the season finale. Mm -hmm. For season two, episode two. I, I like, want to Snapchat you this. <laughs> you should. I have exactly one bullet point. Oh, boy. <laughs> and it just it just says ear mapping. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me so much more. <laughs> so the only thing noteworthy in this entire episode was that... <laughs> They're looking for this guy that they haven't been able to find for a whole year who blew up the Congress, whatever that building was, anyway. <laughs> <The Capitol. laughs> My God. And he comes into an airport, arrives at an airport. And they can't... Oh my god, yes. This is my favorite. They can't okay. get a visual of his face, and yet there's an ear visible. <laughs> and they're like, ear mapping is the same as matching DNA. And so they have this little weird graphic that like matches his ear to another ear and says like, 100% match. As if you fucking like played a slot machine and you're like, oh yeah. And they're like, okay, he's here confirmed like that that's it (laughs) 
Oh my god. <laughs> like, A, I want to know if that's real. And B, I want to know why. <laughs> oh my god. <coughs> Sorry, it's so good. <laughs> it killed me. I, <laughs> I laughed this hard at the time that I watched it, too. Because you know how so many people on the internet are always angry about, like, hacker shit and, like, all of the weird shit that, like, hackers on TV think they can do with, like, DNA evidence and facial recognition. Mm -hmm. This was, like, next level tomfuckery. It truly was. Like, they show the surveillance video, the dude's wearing a baseball cap, and you only get the profile of his face because he's actively avoiding all of the cameras, and... Like, they zoom in on the ear, and the resolution on the ear is worse than the <laughs> resolution so on the profile of his face. So it's like, right there, y'all failed. And they're like, these blurry bits, they're the same. <laughs> also, I would like to think that a DC airport has enough video surveillance that they can get one angle of this person's face. You would think that there would be cameras on, like, both sides of the hallway, basically, so that you get, like, both sides of traffic. Well, and, like, I would buy that they picked him up on regular surveillance just as much as I'm supposed to, maybe more than I would buy that they're ear mapping him to figure out who he is. Yeah. <laughs> Agreed. Like, they could simplify their story. <laughs> it's one of those things that, that, like immediately pulls me out of the moment because I just think of what must have been going on in the writer's room at the time where it's like, did someone read an article or was someone thinking wishfully about what the FBI can do? Like, where <laughs> would ear mapping come from? <laughs> I just Googled ear mapping and there are oh, no. zero results as it relates to surveillance or... DNA or using it as a form of identification. Okay, but I'm interested in the fact that it's as relates to, so what are their results for? There's, like, maps of the different parts of an ear, like diagrams. Okay, okay. Reflexology maps. Sure. How to use speech mapping as part of a hearing instrument something. Mapping ear canal movement. Okay, I just googled... Ear mapping for crime solving. Or <laughs> back with FBI. The top result is 10 cold cases solved from forensics colleges. Oh boy. I'm clicking through. <laughs> I like that you definitely took a swig of something as you clicked. <laughs> you need that. Needed preparation. Oh my god. I'm not reading carefully, but I just saw the words forensic vacuum, and that sounds interesting. <laughs> I will have you know that none of these cases were solved using ears. <laughs> so ear mapping is definitively a load of complete horseshit. <laughs> I just want to know what was happening in the writer's room when that became a thing. <laughs> So some things that I love about this show, because as Kelsey very rightly points out, it's terrible and there's really no reward to watching it. Like it feels a little punishing at times. 
That's not entirely true. There are rewards. You get ear mapping, for example. <laughs> right, you get those high-end finishes. <laughs> you get those high-end finishes. You get lines like, give me your government-issued Blackberry. <laughs> <laughs> you get backstories about closed off FBI agents about how they only joined to piss off their father. That's so fun. Oh, you get you also get lines such as the governor reversed his racist orders. <laughs> a line for these are modern times. Yep. Well, <laughs> so season 1 spends a lot of time riffing off of 2016. Mhm. And so there's there's this whole thing where the governor of some Midwestern state tries to do some shady shit with refugees. And long story short, they call in the National Guard and then they arrest the guy for the governor for treason. Like you do. Sure, sure. So that's where that line came from. Anyway, so I, I might have mentioned on the show before, but I have a guilty pleasure for network dramas. So one of my favorite shows of all time was the one season Wonder Flash Forward. <laughs> which I have rewatched so many fucking times. I also had a brief fling with Under the Dome and Revolution, which are both really tough shows that we are definitely going to talk about at some point. <laughs> so, which is like amazing because I don't do dramas. It's just that like network dramas are so magnetic. Um, and I think a lot of them pull from all of the mistakes and missteps from Lost, but treat those missteps as if they were positive life choices. Oh, no. Like, I I fondly, I didn't like Lost. I've seen, I've seen like a quarter of Lost, and I don't like it. But I do think of it as the mentor teacher for the network dramas of the more modern era. And so some of these missteps include... You know, starting your pilot off with one fantastical event and then expecting that you can keep that up through the indefinite life of a series. Right. You know your season is going to most likely be 22 episodes, and you know that your goal is to keep those seasons happening for as long as possible. So how do you possibly believe that you can have one bombing last you whatever six times 22 is? I'm not trying to do that kind of math on the fly. <laughs> but you, you're picking up what I'm throwing down. Like, that's a lot of content that you have to drum up based around this one fantastical premise. Right. So, like, these creators walk into the room with, like, this incredible idea that is a captivating idea. Like, blowing up all of Washington, D.C. is kind of a great storyline, but you can't sustain that over the life of a network drama. Especially because, like, these aren't character-driven stories they're no like event-driven stories so they mm -hmm. have very short lifespans right and then you have to be like there is a character here he wears <laughs> glasses and a hoodie could he be president i have a thousand and a half feelings about tom kirkman's wardrobe and his uh, I I referred to her as White House Barbie for a little while, but Ugh. his like little assistant lady Emily. Oh, that's not who I was thinking of. I thought you were no. thinking of wannabe Tammy Taylor. No, she can <laughs> suck it. She can suck it so hard. <laughs> I'm right there with you. But I have a lot of feelings about their wardrobe choices. Anyway. The other thing that they do is because they know that they have to somehow draw out this one event for, like, a very long time, 
they try to create these convoluted storylines that explain the event, but instead of the storyline itself being convoluted, it's the way that you learn about the storyline that's convoluted. So they spend, like, five episodes name-dropping a thing. In Designated Survivor, it was Catalan, which was, I believe, and I could be wrong, the name, like, the code name of a guy who... I think the guy who Hannah Wells eventually kills in the season one finale mm-hmm. doesn't really matter. He dies anyway. But Catalan is like the most important thing for like a lot of season one. And then they discover what Catalan is. And it's this very anticlimactic thing. Like they make you believe it's this huge international like terrorist organization. And then it turns out it's like the code name of this one dude. And this dude is connected to some other stuff. But it's just like his name. Right. And so then those five episodes of everyone running around being like, Catalan, 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 are out the window. And now you're on to the next thing. Which drives me fucking crazy. I'm someone who likes to pick up hints and who fixates. And so when network dramas fuck with my head by throwing around this thing as if it's the thing I'm supposed to focus on, and then they just toss it out the window and move on to the next thing, I'm like, you know, I thought we had something special here. I was really (laughs) bonding with Catalan. And now I feel like I have abandonment issues. Yep. So there's just like a fuckload of that. And it makes me feel like at any given point, because there's so many different plots that are extremely important for short lengths of time, the like net result to me is that there's no plot that's important ever. Right. (laughs) Which like is overall a negative criticism. I also kind of like it because it feels like this constant roller coaster of like, what am I supposed to care about next? It doesn't (laughs) even matter. (laughs) Should I care about this bad plot or this bad plot? (laughs) And then if you ever, like, go back and rewatch, or in my case tonight, I was reading episode recaps to, like, make sure that everything was fresh. And there was all this shit that happened in each of these episodes and over the course of the season that I had completely forgotten about. Because there's all of these, like, little plots that they have to insert to each episode because they have to buy themselves 22 hour-long episodes worth of time. Right. I think it's... A precious little pet project. It's hilarious. It's an incredible (laughs) quote machine. I have so many quotes. One of my favorites is, but at the end of the day, I'm not the president of the United States. Remember that. And then they literally flash forward to him becoming president of the United States. Sure. (laughs) There's also some fantastic fuck-ups that include, just like because... Real life is nothing like this, but it includes him as designated survivor in the opening scene, watching the State of the Union, the news footage cuts out, the Secret Service comes in to tell him bad things are happening, and he whips open the shutters of this window of, (laughs) like, a four-story building, and in the distance, he watches the mushroom cloud come out of the Capitol as it's burning. Right. And then they throw him in a motorcade and drive him across surface streets through D.C. to the White House, where they walk him through the above ground front door, swear him in above ground in not a bunker, and then eventually take him to what they refer to as the Presidential Emergency Operations Center. Oh, like that is the kind of shit I live for. So when you watch this, is it like a pure hate watch? 
Yes. So pure. So true. All right. Just checking. I, sp- <laughs> I spent most of the pilot just sitting there raging, being like, why is he still above ground? Literally all of the people of all of Washington, like all of Congress, the president, the vice president, all of the Supreme Court, the entire cabinet. Like, uh, Tom Kirkman is the director of HUD. You want to know what position in line of succession HUD is? They're number 13, mm-hmm. which the show says is number 11, but HUD is actually number 13. So who needs facts when you're on a network? True that. So 12 cabinet members, all of the Supreme Court, like literally all of D.C. dies in this one bombing that no one can explain because the bombs came from inside the building. But sure, let's drive the president across all of D.C. and then swear him in above ground. You know, like, it's like the logic failure. Right. Is my favorite. Right. I liked how at the end of, I won, maybe, I don't know, one of these episodes, so it could have been the end of season one or the beginning of season two, but he's talking to some other dude and he's like, are you ready to be the designated survivor? And the guy's like, I used to think this was a punishment, but now I think it's honorable. <laughs> oh my god. That's great. The show is so amazing. <laughs> there are so many incredible quotes that are supposed to be these big, like, swelling, sweeping, like, endorsements of our country and our strength and humanity and, like, all of that kind of shit. And it it happens almost every episode. Like, there's at least every two to three episodes, there's a scene where Kiefer Sutherland takes off his Warby Parkers and sighs heavily into his V-neck J. Crew sweater and then delivers a very poignant monologue about the American people. Right. It's like, I get it. I get it. <laughs> I love it. I love it yeah. so much. So if you also love Designated Survivor, <laughs> or think it's worthy of a hate watch, let us know what you think on Twitter at Hate Watch with us. Or send us an email if you feel like it. But we still haven't <laughs> answered any emails yet, so. Uh, that is not true. We have answered two emails, and there's one email that has gone unanswered. That's Sorry, right. Alan. I also haven't tweeted or updated our website in a while because I'm busy and not doing a good job. Yeah, the only time our Twitter gets updated is whenever I feel like there needs to be an entry in our love story. (laughs) It's pretty great. (laughs) But you guys know where to find us, so it's fine. Yeah, you know what's up. So speaking of some people who had a lot of time on their hands. Yeah, good one, good one. The winter of 2007. Yep. (laughs) Let's talk about those writers. Let's talk about them. This, This topic was your idea. So... So talk to me about this time in your life. This was a tumultuous time in my life. (laughs) 2007, I think, was my senior year of high school and your senior year of high school. Right? Oh my god, it was. Yeah. Wow, nothing fucks you harder than time. No. So the writer's strike happened, and suddenly I had no television to watch (laughs) for months. And it was It went on for so long. And, yeah, so some, there were varying effects depending on, like, the network and the show and all that stuff, but it had a, like, serious impact in the way that, um, 
like different season orders ended up happening or certain shows or types of shows became more prevalent or became less prevalent. So I thought it would be a timely topic to discuss. This this mm-hmm. initially came up like when we were on the verge of maybe having another one and it's stuck in our calendar uh, because <laughs> there were so many shows that were affected by it that we still know and love. I think the most notorious being like Friday Night Lights season two. Yep. <laughs> Which was a tough time. I wasn't watching that in real time, but I remember specifically like The Office was a huge blow yep. to me personally in that moment in time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they were one of the shows that went on hiatus, right? Uh, yeah. So basically shows either just stopped. It was like if you had all of your content already shot, you just ran per usual if you had some shot, yep. you ran and then were cut early. Or if you had, yep. like, nothing, you ran and then went on hiatus and then came back in, like, March. Yep. Although not all shows were as lucky. There were some shows who got their full season back when the writers came back. There were some shows who should have but got the season cut, like Breaking Bad had that happen. Yeah. There were some shows who it worked out better for, like Scrubs was supposed to have ended at season seven. But because they lost, I want to say, two episodes of their order, um, they ended up bringing it back for season eight. Oh, I didn't know that. Which was a life choice. Yeah, I just found that out um, in doing research for this. Um, Bill Lawrence, who was the showrunner, was ready to be done at season seven. And then their season order got cut short. And I think at that time they had just moved from wherever they were to ABC. And then ABC decided to renew them for the next season and from everything I've read, it does not seem like that would have happened without the writer's strike. Yeah. Should we talk about, like, why the writer's strike happened at all? Yeah. We can, we can touch on it briefly. little um, media history for you. Yeah. Media history, courtesy of Wikipedia, because I'm lazy. <laughs> so, causes of the writer's strike mainly were DVD residuals, which didn't pan out because no one cares about DVDs anymore. Yep. If you're a film person who really cares about DVDs, I'm sorry a little. The other thing was new media, which was obviously important, and getting credited for things that were, like, very new, like streaming or when you, you know, like, selling your episode on iTunes or whatever it may be. Yep. They were still figuring out what the best format was for that. It could have included, like, Netflix. I don't know all, like, the details of it was it was definitely I mean Netflix existed at the time but it was before it was before streaming right it was before shows had a home on streaming the way they do now so a lot of it a lot of it was based around network specific websites so like ABC yeah. having episodes on their website and so on and so forth I mean I think like the the forethought was probably a good thing like yeah good for those guys. Well, and even at the time, because as you mentioned, like shows were on iTunes and that was there was a lot of business being done that way. And because it was in a time before streaming, like DVDs for shows did matter at the time. Like people would buy box sets and shit. So it was people seeing the winds of change, but already being screwed by it, too. Yeah. Because it all happened very quickly. Right. From what I, what Wikipedia told me, there was a $342 million loss based on yep. this, uh, like, halting in production, which was interesting. And then, basically, like, the shows that didn't require writers did well. <laughs> yep. 
So reality shows did well. And this article mentioned Canadian shows. Mm, interesting. Which, like, I want to know more because Cottage Life. Yeah, I feel like that, I mean, we all know that um, Canada owns HGTV because of tax credits, but I do feel like that adds an interesting spin. Yeah, and I think, like, any shows that produce out of Toronto and pretended it was New York, like, that yep, would help exactly. Them. And then Late Night did well, which mm-hmm. makes sense. It was, like, during an election, too, so I think that yeah, like, just worked in their favor, and I think that was really, like, the a big rise for, like, Stephen Colbert did really, really mm-hmm. well during that time. Although, as someone who was watching Late Night at the time, that was part of my frustration because the quality of the shows definitely suffered. Like, yeah, they kept doing their thing and they did it admirably, but it was not the same. And I was like, I rely on you for this shit. What are you doing to me? Yeah, I think it gave them a platform because it was yes. like new content. Yeah. And I don't think that they shied away from highlighting that there was a strike and they were on their own. Right. Now, for both Jon Stewart and Stephen Colbert, they, like, made points of bringing it up almost every episode. Like, Jon Stewart changed the name of The Daily Show to A Daily Show. Yeah. And Stephen Colbert started referring to it as the Colbert? Colbert? I don't know. He said his name differently. Right. the bottom line. And they both, like, would make jokes about it constantly and at the ends of various episodes would like throw out platitudes to their writers while they were on strike and things like that so good for those guys sucks for everyone else yep the one like beacon of shining light that happened from this was that the geico cavemen show was canceled (laughs) oh my god is it that old yeah no shit so that was worth it (laughs) but do you want to sort of jump into like specifics of yeah. different shows or like what yeah what do you got before I take over this whole thing <laughs> okay I don't I mean I don't have a ton to offer I was not watching much tv at the time so I was mostly watching late know night. me yet I know <laughs> guys this was like on the precipice of our friendship yeah the writer's strike ended February, when March, we became April, friends May. we brought the writer's three strike months to an before <laughs> The writers asked their astrologist, who saw in the stars, <laughs> that we were fated to meet. I'm sticking to that narrative. <laughs> me too, me too, me too. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I was pretty much only watching The Colbert Report and The Daily Show at the time. Sadly, I will admit to you that I was also watching, on a rerun-only basis, Family Guy. We all have our moments. We all had that moment in particular, too. Yeah, we really did. I just learned, like, two weeks ago, it was longer than that, but from an episode of ATV recently that Family Guy is still on the air with new episodes, and I don't know that I've ever been so bummed. Yeah. That was just a bummer. Whenever I tune in for live Bob's Burgers and I see the promos for what else is going on on, like, Sunday nights on Fox, I'm like, oh. (laughs) It's tough out there, isn't it? Yeah, it's bad. Also, American Dad is still on. Mm-hmm. Which, like, if I had to, like, gun to my head, I would choose Family Guy over American Dad every fucking time. Yes, 1,000%. Oh, my God. Look at what is being done to us. <laughs> <laughs> oh. So, anyway, I was only watching those two shows at the time. 
I was, however, very early on starting my career as a lurker of the internet. And I spent a lot of time following stories. Um, this was also probably about a semester or a year after my first media literacy course, where we had spent a bunch of time on new media because it was a like up and coming like thing in the world. So I was super enraged about writer's credits and residuals and everything they were striking over and was also firmly under the belief that streaming was going to ruin everything in the universe because the corporate overlords had finally found a way (laughs) (laughs) to win. (laughs) Look at you. So a lot has happened in the last 10 years. I'm also like a a little surprised you weren't watching The Office in real time. Oh, fuck no. When did you watch The Office? College. No fucking way. I, when did I start The Office? I had caught up by the time Jim and Pam's proposal happened because I watched that via some kind of internet streaming service about a week after it aired. Wow. We live different lives. Yep. I did at the time refer to it as the happiest moment of my entire life. (laughs) I also got misty-eyed, which I regret in retrospect. (laughs) I survived another Mike Schur proposal. (laughs) We need it. We need it. (laughs) That's really funny. So that's like my history with the writer's strike at the time that it was happening. The the biggest impact on me personally is that I have tried to watch Friday Night Lights three separate times, and yep. every single time I get trapped in the writer strike vortex. Yeah. So let's talk about the, season two of Friday Night Lights. Let's talk about that. Before we do that, I did find an article that ranked four shows that were impacted by the writer strike from least to most tragic. Number four was Breaking Bad. Number three was a show I've never heard of, Terminator, The Sarah Chronicles. Sarah Connor Chronicles. I don't know. I was writing fast. Sure. Number two was 30 Rock. And number one, Friday Night Lights. Yeah. Yes. But I actually have a suspicion, theory, maybe, that the writer's strike did not ruin Friday Night Lights, but saved Friday Night Lights. Okay, that last part is a twist ending. Tell me more. So, season two was in place before the writer's strike began. Yep. So either they had particularly disgruntled writers, or, like, things were just going poorly. (laughs) Uh Uh-huh. Because season two starts out bad and ends bad. And it's basically, like, season one is a beautiful, majestic, wonderful piece of work yeah season one's incredible season two is like you have christian lila you have like that was the worst part Mm -hmm. because she's usually the worst you have their like new their new baby who looks kind of like an alien and julie is really a huge asshole (laughs) about them having a baby and matt is dating his grandma's like live-in nurse and there's just, like, a lot of 
poor choices. Like, Tim is sleeping with his neighbor who was a kid, I think. I don't know. When is the murder plot? Is that season two? Yeah, that's also happening. Okay. (laughs) While all that shit's happening, there's also (laughs) a weird, like, rapey murder plot. Which, to the writer's credit, whoever it was that figured this out managed to squash it as fast as possible, but someone else made the decision to start it. Yeah. So, like, mid-season two, you get, like serious not even backpedaling but just like let's get the fuck out of this mess that we've made for ourselves yep and they start to try and write things and fix things and then it just ends (laughs) and that's where the writer's strike comes in it's interesting too because they they were one of the shows that had started some production before the strike but didn't have only had so much written before it and so they had a shortened order so they only got 15 out of their 22 episodes Right. And the thing that I've seen speculated is that if they had gotten all 22, because there were like some shows here and there that managed to get their full order. So if they had gotten their full 22, that they could have used those extra seven episodes to make up for everything they lost at the beginning of the season. Yeah. And what ended up happening was like they got flipped to DirecTV for season three and then nbc aired them later ah so i think that also helped in terms of like steering them in the right direction yep and they do almost like a full reset in season four which is executed really well but like the rest of the series is so flawless but season two is such a scary scary place but then there it's only what five seasons yeah so if you figure that they spend the entire series run on this like crazy emotional roller coaster, a good chunk of which is just recovering from season two. I fail to understand how it becomes such a flawless execution of a show. Because we just forget about season two. We just pretend okay. it didn't happen. It's Fair not enough. so much a recovery portion as it's just like we're moving on. <laughs> Fair. But there's things like lost things in season two, like Santiago. Uh huh. Who's a character who becomes kind of Im- not important, but he's there, and then we just never hear about him again after season two. <laughs> and there's there's a podcast called Brunch. They did a Friday Night Lights like week a co- like a year ago, maybe. I don't uh-huh. recommend listening to every episode of this podcast by any means, but if you go back and listen to those, they interviewed the guy who played Santiago and it's like, it's such a shit show. That's amazing. It's as much of, of a shit show as season two is. And they admitted <laughs> later, they were like, this was bad, but they're like, what, what, what happened to Santiago? And he's like, I don't know, man. <laughs> oh, <boy. laughs> That's awesome. That whole like series of Friday Night Lights content is really great, but I love that someone pursued the question of what happened to Santiago. And that there's not actually an answer. Right. Right. One other thing that I think is interesting, going back to Scrubs in particular, is they had two episodes that aired into the writer's strike that had not been written beforehand. And one of them was made almost entirely of unused footage from older episodes. Oh, it was like a clip show. <laughs> Basically. So I, I've i never seen this episode. It is called... Hold on, I'm pulling up an Alan Seppenwall review of it, actually. 
It was from season seven, which I gave up on Scrubs sometime around season six. That's a show I have tried to rewatch so many times I've literally lost count. And I have never gotten further than like the first couple of episodes of season seven. Oh. It was called My Nana Naz. Mm-hmm. I don't know. And anyway, there's this whole subplot with Turk where he's performing surgery on this paralyzed kid and he tries a thing that he saw in Sports Center. And essentially, the reason that plot came to be is because the whole Sports Center stuff was scrapped from previous episodes. Oh. So they were like, let's just piece it back together and it'll be fine. Basically. <laughs> Basically. So they had those two episodes and then went on hiatus. And then season eight was renewed and they tacked whatever missing episodes there were to the beginning of season eight. Gotcha. And then the show finally fucking ended. I didn't realize that How I Met Your Mother was affected by this. I didn't realize it was on at the time. Yeah, I guess it fucks you harder than time. (laughs) I feel like it's a testament to like how they must have done okay. Yeah. Because I've never noticed it watching it, but it was season three, so it was, like, fairly early on, but... Oh, yeah. It was, like, near the Slapsgiving time frame. Uh-huh, uh-huh. So they were in a really good, like, strong... It was one of their stronger seasons, I think. Yeah. So it was interesting. I also didn't realize until I looked at this list that Big Bang Theory was on at the time, and I will say for now the fourth time this episode... Nothing fucks you harder than time. Nothing fucks you harder than the Big Bang Theory on CBS. (laughs) Not in a good way. No. In a horrible way. (laughs) I have one more show that I want to discuss. Okay. And I just have some feelings. Okay. So The Office was one of those shows that their writer's room was on a quicker turnaround. So they... Yep. didn't have enough episodes to carry them through. So they went on hiatus, and then they came back. And the first episode they came back with, with a pure vengeance, was Dinner Party. Wait, really? Yes. Oh. <laughs> Wait. Wait a second. Wait a second. For context, into oh, this awkward moment... <laughs> They only made six episodes before the strike, so, yeah. yeah. So, Kirstie doesn't think Dinner Party is the best episode (laughs) of The Office, and I think it is decisively the best episode of The Office, and the internet (laughs) has agreed with me. And so does this, because this proves that the writers had something to prove when they came back, and they came in with the best episode of the series. (sighs) (laughs) Who doesn't love Dinner Party? There are funny moments. No, it's it not is a funny episode. The funniest episode. <laughs> I there didn't are plan funnier this, episodes. Kirstie, but this just happened to me when I was googling this tonight, and I got so excited <laughs> that I made. This is off really the couch. why you wanted to do this. <laughs> of course, you did. <laughs> so, you wanting to celebrate the ten-year anniversary of the writer's strike was just another ploy in no. the never-ending battle. Over Dinner Party. Dinner Party is the best episode. Dinner Party is not the best episode. Look, y'all, we've got a few listeners out there. I know you're there. You gotta tell me. You gotta back me up on this one. It's not the funniest. It It is is not the funniest. Absolutely the funniest. No. There are funnier episodes of The Office. 
No, you don't get that song in every episode. Well, no. There are funny moments. I'm not denying that there aren't things in the episode that are funny. It is the best It's just like the architecture of the episode is like too much for me. I like can't. It's too real. It gets too real. I can't think it's funny because it's too real. It's so good. If you could remove the funny moments from like when shit gets weird, then I could be there. But I can't be there. You want to know what's a good dinner party episode of a television show? (sighs) What? The dinner party that Leslie Nope holds for her boyfriend, Justin. Now that's how you do a dinner party episode. That is not even close. How dare you? That is a fantastic episode. I watched it last night and I almost texted you to tell you that it was better than dinner party. How dare you? (laughs) I stand by it. Well, I guess that makes me the devil. Well played. (laughs) I give you props. You want to know what else is a good dinner party episode? Is like the first or second Thanksgiving episode of Brooklyn Nine-Nine where Amy tries to have a Thanksgiving at her house. Also a fantastic dinner party episode of a sitcom. These pale in comparison to dinner party. No, Dinner Party only has funny moments. It's not funny in its totality. It is funny in its totality. Are you kidding me? No, it's not. It is. No. (laughs) There is nothing funnier. There are so many things funnier. They go on the tour of their house. He has this plasma screen TV (laughs) that he spent $200 on, and it's like an eight-inch square. And then it gets broken in a moment of domestic abuse. It's not. That's not not cute. It's not. It is. It's. It is. It is. It's fine. No, they don't. They absolutely don't. Michael Scott bears the trauma of that relationship until he meets Holly. And arguably, even afterwards, because he sabotages his love for Holly on so many occasions. But at least they break up after this episode. Okay, but that doesn't make it funny. It makes it funny that they were there (laughs) and it happened and he brings his, like, beer sign up. <laughs> that I hate. That's the music. part of the, that's one of the parts of the episode I hate the most. It's so awkward. That's why it's so funny. No, because it's not funny. Awkward. It's like, oh my god, something horrible is happening. She has awkward. an office and a workspace. Yeah, that's funny. Like, come on. <laughs> she puts on the thing to cook, and it takes like five hours from when they show up. Also funny. I I agree that there are funny moments. There are punchlines that landed. Every part of that episode lands so strongly. No, it makes me emotionally uncomfortable. <laughs> I'm going to do another Twitter poll about this and I'm going to write again. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever. Come at me. Come at me, all of you. If you'd like to confirm that I'm correct, that Dinner Party is the best episode of The Office, and therefore the writer's strike was a victory, please tell me that on Twitter at Hate Watch With Us. Or send us your case studies <laughs> to our email, hatewatchwithus at gmail.com, in which you can make very articulate and well-cited arguments as to why this is a highly disturbing episode 
No. Yeah. No. Yeah. Yeah. We should have like we should put this in a in a the old thesis ideas Reddit. Oh boy. Yeah, shit could get super real that way. I'm still right. <laughs> I will never back down from this platform here, Steve. Neither will I, <laughs> my dear friend. <laughs> Which do you think is more real? The drama over dinner party or the drama over Alfonso's status Ooh. as Harry Potter director. Wow. Yeah. That's tough. Which one do you think is more responsible for our divorce? Um, I think it's dinner party. Really? Because you'll concede more about Alfonso than you will about dinner party. <laughs> you don't think saying that it has funny moments is a concession? No, because you don't appreciate the episode as a whole. No, I do not appreciate it in totality. And I don't understand how you don't. I think I've made my position very clear. But the song is so good. It is. It's hilarious. I love it. (laughs) I just don't think... I challenge you to name one episode that is better and stronger. I have. One I sent it to you episode. on Slack that one time. And yeah. if we didn't have 73,000 messages uh-huh. that's literally that Slack won't let us see, oh, you mean I would go back and prove it to you. That you can't think of what episode is better? Well, no. <laughs> you think I have time to memorize that many episode titles? I have that time to memorize one. It's called Dinner Party. I didn't even know <laughs> that... These two very important characters in Designated Survivor were actually two different characters. I thought it was the same character up until an hour ago. <laughs> so this is going well. He died like seven times and I was like, how, how do you keep dying? Oh. It's because it was two different guys. Oh, no. <laughs> so you really expect me to know episode titles? Maybe. Yeah. <sighs> All right. Well, <laughs> well, if you want to find other stuff, you can find all of our friends at Thought Bubble Audio. You can ask them what they think about Dinner Party, too. Yeah, ask them what they think about Dinner Party. <laughs> We're going to do a Thought Bubble poll. Because I'll take all of them on. You hear that, <laughs> Thought Bubble Audio friends? I'm coming for all of you. Oh, boy. <laughs> Challenge accepted. But they're at thoughtbubbleaudio.com or at Thought Bubble FM on Twitter, and they also have a Patreon, and there are some shows that you could listen to, like Beer with Geeks, and Supergirl TV Talk, and Academy Rewind, and Krypton, I always forgot the rest of the name, I'm sorry, Palmer. <laughs> wow. But I know it's about Krypton. Right. And we're there. We're there too, if you still like us after this debacle. <laughs> Which you will, because you know that I stand on principle here. Oh, God. (laughs) Sorry you all have to listen to her being wrong while I'm over here being right. I'm so sorry that Kelsey is dragging you into this extremely (laughs) petty war. (laughs) Petty is my favorite thing. (laughs) Let's not pretend that we aren't both fans of being petty i know it's so much fun (laughs) (sighs) and if you want more petty drama 
tune in next week. <laughs> Thanks for listening. <laughs> we'll see you next time. Bye. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> Do a control F for ear. <laughs> I promise we won't make this another cottage life. <laughs> No, we're not going to go that deep. Like, we can, Down but the we rabbit won't. hole. <laughs> we're willing, if that's what the people want, but... Yeah, you can let us know on our Twitter at HeyWatchWithUs. <laughs> we will spend all of our time looking at the internet while recording on this podcast.